0: Welcome to Educate Caring Activists Teachers for Equity, the podcast about all things education and equity. I'm Jennifer Martin from the University of Illinois at Springfield. This is Season 3, Episode 2, Altercate. Wendy J. Murphy, JD, teaches sexual violence and law reform at New England Law Boston, where she also co directs the Women's and Children's Advocacy Project. WCAP, under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. WCAP runs the Judicial Language Project, which entails students using sociolinguistic research to critique the language used in law and society to describe violence against women and children. WCAP also writes amicus briefs and engages in public interest litigation to advance the rights of women and children. In addition, WCAP runs the JD PhD project, which brings together a law student and a PhD student who work across disciplines to critique the methodological reliability of scientific research to either enhance or prevent its admissibility in legal proceedings, hence its impact on law, Policy and human behavior. On January 7, 2020, WCAP filed a federal lawsuit in the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts to ensure validation of the Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA. In the aftermath of the ratification by Virginia as the 38th and last state needed to add the ERA as the 28th Amendment, to the United States Constitution. Wendy prosecuted child abuse and sex crimes cases for several years, during which time she observed systematic discrimination and injustices against victimized women and children, which, in 1992, led her to form the first legal organization in the nation to provide pro bono legal services to victims of violence involved in the criminal justice system. Wendy has published numerous scholarly articles, including a landmark piece explaining the legal relationship between sexual assault on campus and Title IX. Dubbed the goddaughter of Title IX by the godmother of Title IX, Dr. Bernice Sandler, Wendy's impact litigation in the area of campus sexual assault beginning in the early 1990s, includes groundbreaking victories against Harvard College in 2002 and Harvard Law School and Princeton University in 2010. These cases led to widespread awareness and reforms and produced the well-known April 2011 Dear Colleague Letter. Wendy regularly provides legal analysis for network and cable news programs. Her first book, And Justice for Some, was published by Penguin Sentinel in 2007 and re-released in paperback in 2013.
1: So, here, so here's exactly how it worked. Uh, and this it's a little complicated, so bear with me. But um, remember I said that back in 1868, women are left out of the 14th Amendment. Well, what that meant was women were not persons because they had zero equal protection rights after 1868. Other people had them. Women did not. Women did not get any rights and the 14th Amendment. They were not considered persons until 1971. And that was not an accident that it was coming in the aftermath of the civil rights era, because frankly, women were fighting and screaming and yelling and protesting. And here the court comes along knowing that the ERA is about to make its way to Congress. Because remember, it passes Congress in 1972. Well, the Supreme Court in 1971 decides in the case called Reed versus Reed, that women are persons. So we, they give us status as human beings in 1971. I, you know, I was alive then. I just still, and I still can't get my head around the idea that I wasn't a person under the 14th Amendment uh, ever. But we, get, we become persons in 1971. But, but in that case, Reed versus Reed, which by the way, the court decided in part to take the wind out of women's sails as they were fighting for the ERA because the one argument women were, not one, but among the many arguments women were making was, uh, we have to have the ERA because we're not even persons under the 14th Amendment. Well, lo and behold, the you know Supreme Court comes along and poof with persons. That took some of the wind out of our sails in terms of our demand for ERA. Uh, people could reasonably say, and lawmakers who were perhaps on the fence about supporting the ERA could say, well, you don't really need it anymore because they gave you personhood in Reed versus Reed in 1971. Well, women kept fighting because when we got personhood in Reed versus Reed, the court said we would be on the lowest rung of personhood. Other classes of people would have high levels of legal protection for their equal protection rights, but women would be way down here basically with stuff. So that if we suffered discrimination and went to court, the judges would be required to use what's called rational basis review, which is to say... You know if you come up with any reason whatsoever to have a different rule for women than men it would be okay and the discrimination would be allowed under the constitution if that were your argument for race discrimination national origin discrimination religious discrimination any other category it wouldn't work under rational basis and those all those other categories were subjected to the highest degree of legal scrutiny called strict scrutiny Um, I describe strict scrutiny and rational basis scrutiny just asking people to picture a triangle with the little tip at the top, if you could draw two horizontal lines across a triangle with a little tip at the top um, representing strict scrutiny, that's the amount of discrimination that's allowed under strict scrutiny, tiny, tiny amount. Well, the middle piece, that big piece of the triangle in the center is called middle tier or intermediate scrutiny. And then the piece at the bottom, the big, big piece at the bottom, that's rational basis scrutiny, where it's the biggest piece. And that's where women were. So anything, anything made it through. I mean, it just, nothing was illegal under rational basis scrutiny. Very little was illegal under rational basis scrutiny. Nevertheless, we were persons. So we were basically told, you don't need the ERA as as much as you used to before Reed versus Reed. But women said, We don't want rational basis scrutiny. We want strict scrutiny. We want to be equal. When equal protection happens, if we're not equal, when we ask for equal protection, if you're giving us unequal protection because the scrutiny that courts use is um, weaker for women, that's not equal protection. That's unequal protection. And How can you give someone unequal protection under the equal protection clause? It was really asinine when you come down to it. So it was women were able to argue effectively that Reed versus Reed gave them nothing. And that again, supported their argument. We need the ERA, we need the ERA. ERA will require courts to use strict scrutiny. So we want strict scrutiny. We want the ERA and Congress in fact, uh, then pass the ERA. But because of Reed versus Reed, because it gave us personhood, they got away with attaching a seven-year deadline that they probably wouldn't have gotten away with if Reed versus Reed hadn't been decided. So you can see how the Supreme Court is playing a role in defeating the ERA while appearing to be supportive of women's rights. It's a tried and true process. It happens, this is not the only example of how that happens. It just does happen that the Supreme Court plays a role in undermining rights while appearing to be supporting them. cases come along that absolutely kill any hope of the era making it to 38 states before the deadline expires one is roe versus wade and i'll explain that in a second and the other is called frontero versus richardson they were decided within months of each other roe versus wade was really harmful to the era though many would say good for women and you know there are things that are good about it i i don't actually think it was as much of a victory as it could have been um, which we'll talk about another time but the reason it hurt the era is because the court said abortion rights are constitutionally protected and abortion is going to be treated as a fundamental right well fundamental rights get strict scrutiny so women who were arguing about the need for the era in part so they could get strict scrutiny for all their rights suddenly had strict scrutiny for this really important right, abortion, and again, take some of the wind out of the sails of the fight for ratification in 38 states. Um, what I mean by that is once Roe v. Wade was decided, states that were anti-ERA or on the fence about ERA, but were facing these enormous um, pressures politically to do right by women, they were able to say with a straight face, well, you know, we don't really have to ratify the ERA because uh you got roe versus wade you the supreme court gave you what the era would give you so we don't have to give it to you they would use that to their advantage as an excuse to not ratify and the second case that came down again in 1973 so in the very early stages of trying to get to 38 states uh frontero versus richardson was a case where the United States Supreme Court said, it was a plurality opinion, which is to say it wasn't a majority ruling, but it was a plurality, which is important because that's to be respected by all the other courts. Um, Women will now have strict scrutiny under the 14th Amendment. So women were like, wow, we just got strict scrutiny. We don't need the ERA anymore because that is the thing the ERA gives to women in terms of giving them fully equal rights. Remember, we became persons in 71. Now in 73, they're saying, you're fully equal. Strict scrutiny gets you the equalist of equal rights. You have fully equal protection now because you are on par with all the other classes, race, national origin, and so forth. Frontero in particular, but in combination with Roe versus Wade, we now have abortion and all other 14th Amendment rights are now fully equal, protected under the 14th Amendment and or the Constitution in in some other way, which is abortion, and all under strict scrutiny. Why would anybody need or want anything more? Women, what are you you complaining about? You have all that you need from the Supreme Court, so who cares about the ERA? It doesn't... doesn't offer anything more than what the Supreme Court has given you. Once it was clear that um, support for the ERA was dead, so in like 75, early 76, the Supreme Court decided another case called Craig versus Boren. And in Craig versus Boren, the Supreme Court took away strict scrutiny. Once it was clear the ERA was dead, remember that they took away strict scrutiny and gave women middle-tier scrutiny. Again, picture that middle piece of the triangle, uh, slightly better than the lowest tier, but nowhere near as good as that top tiny triangle strict scrutiny. Um, And the size of that triangle piece that would now apply to women was very big in the sense that it would let lots of discriminatory laws through. And the critical difference between strict scrutiny and middle-tier or intermediate scrutiny is that intermediate scrutiny doesn't require the government to prove that they could have rewritten the rule or the regulation or the policy to be less discriminatory. Strict scrutiny does. In other words, if you get in trouble and you get accused of uh, having a racist policy, for example, you go to, somebody sues you, you go to court. If, If the person suing can show that you could have rewritten the policy to be less racially discriminatory, you have to rewrite it. I mean, it gets struck down. But if you go in with the same argument on behalf of a woman, and the woman says this could be re- written, this could be rewritten to be less discriminatory against women, uh, the court says back to you, well, that may be, but you're not entitled to that consideration. That's only required under strict scrutiny. So this is what's called the least restrictive means rule. It only applies under strict scrutiny, and when it doesn't apply lots of discriminatory stuff is is permitted, legally permitted under the 14th Amendment. So where does RBG fit in all of this? And why am I angry with her? Well, um, in between 1973 for versus Richardson and 1976, Craig versus Boren, when they took it away from us and bumped us down to intermediate scrutiny and gave us explicit second-class status, uh, there were several cases that were brought to the Supreme Court or decided in, uh, in, in certain jurisdictions. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was involved in some of them. And what I did was I looked at the briefs she wrote after Frontero and before Craig versus Boren to see whether she was advocating for strict scrutiny under Frontero. In other words, when she wrote a brief about women's rights after Frontero came down, Was she demanding strict scrutiny protection for her female client, or in some cases, her male client? Was she saying, Frontero versus Richardson demands that you apply strict scrutiny? This is the new, wonderful case law from the Supreme Court that has given women full equality under the 14th Amendment, and I demand that you apply strict scrutiny to my client's rights, because she had a lot of cases after Frontero and before Craig versus Boren. And um, the briefs that I read that she wrote after Frontero, where she had to cite Frontero because she was arguing on behalf of women's 14th Amendment rights, 14th Amendment equal protection rights, she cited Frontero and never once asked for strict scrutiny. She cited Frontero but never said that Frontero demanded strict scrutiny. She cited Frontero and then, you know, page after page after page about how women suffer and women are not treated right and women suffer discrimination. But then she would ask the court to enforce lesser scrutiny than strict scrutiny.
0: Was this an oversight? Was this intentional? And what would the possible desired outcome be?
1: I don't know the answer to that. Um, I tried to reach out to the lawyers that she worked with at that time. One of them is quite a bit uh advanced in age now, and um the other was a law student who helped her uh she hasn't responded i've I've asked her repeatedly if she'll talk to me i d- The answer is I don't know, but <clears throat> um you know because I do a lot of appellate work, I read Frontero versus Richardson and think this is so fantastic that we have strict scrutiny, and I'm going to go use this as fast and as often as I can to make sure courts embrace it, give it, you know, expanded value, like use it in a hundred cases in the first month, if you can, just to make sure it has staying power. But at a minimum, at a minimum, when you know that the thing you're fighting for is the top of that triangle, strict scrutiny, and you write a brief citing a case that gave women strict scrutiny, and you don't mention strict scrutiny, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I don't, I not So, Frontier versus Richardson involved a challenge to a military regulation that presumed a woman would be more needy and, and therefore, be presumptively entitled to ha- an extra housing allowance because she would be dependent on a man, uh, and and men, uh, on the other hand, would be presumed not to be dependent on their spouse, so they weren't presumptively entitled. So, anyone between. Frontero and Boren, when, when, we, when we lost strict scrutiny, so between 73 and 76, every brief filed on behalf of women's evil protection rights should have cited Frontero and demanded strict scrutiny. And there are cases, which I cited in my paper, where that did happen. I mean, there are federal judges who may, made decisions after Frontero and before Craig versus Boren in 76, where they said, Women are now entitled to strict scrutiny because of Frontero versus Richardson and that's the rule I'm applying. These are federal judges issuing rulings, saying this is what Frontero gave women and those were the results of their decisions. The embrace of the strict scrutiny, the ruling in the woman's favor, why? Because strict scrutiny is really uh, virtually impossible for the government to survive. If you have strict scrutiny, the government is 99% of the time gonna lose Because because it's such a tough standard that virtually no discrimination is tolerated.
0: Tell us what is the status of your lawsuit in Massachusetts and how did we get to the 38 states ratifying the ERA in 2020 and and what's happening now?
1: Yeah, so remember that the, the ERA's deadline expired in either 79 or 82, depending on your view of the extension didn't matter because no states ratified in between 79 and 82, but let's let's call it 82. We only got to 35 states. A lot of women gave up then and said, we have to start over because we didn't get 38 states, three fourths of the states. We didn't get that within the, the deadline period. And uh, you, you have to reach three fourths of the states under Article five of the constitution, which specifically says, The Constitution shall be amended when an amendment is proposed by the Congress and ratified by three-fourths of the states. Then it becomes law. That's really how simple and clear Article 5 is. Uh, There's nothing in there about deadlines, which was one of our arguments about why the deadline should be disregarded in the courts, but let me tell you how we got there. So so 1982 comes, the deadline expires, everybody says, uh, not everybody, most people said, oh, well, we have to start over and or you know, fight in the states for equal pay laws and pregnancy discrimination laws and all that. Um, but a small group of feminists were, were reluctant to start over and they were always strategizing about how to keep going. Um, they didn't like the deadline. A lot of people didn't like the deadline and they felt like it shouldn't be respected. But there wasn't a lot going on between 82 and 92. Then in 1992, um, the 27th amendment was adopted. The 27th Amendment, which is our most recent amendment, uh, guarantees uh, constitutionally speaking that the congressional pay raise process happened in a certain way without boring you to tears about how it works. The point is the 27th Amendment has to do with congressional pay raises. That was adopted and put into the constitution in 1992 and women had a fit. They were livid because why? because that amendment was passed by Congress in 1789, which means it had 203 years to get by three fourths of the states. Women were like, listen, you cannot possibly expect us to accept that this is how the constitution works, that a pay raise amendment gets 203 years, but something far more fundamental to constitutional rights uh, gets seven years. No, we refused to accept that. They were furious, absolutely furious, um, and they felt like the 27th Amendment being given 203 years to ratify uh, would give us a good argument in the courts that the deadline was not valid, the seven-year or 10-year deadline of the ERA was not valid. So they started fighting back with with what was then known as a three-state strategy, and they gathered around the country with different groups and said, let's Push this three-state strategy, meaning let's go get those other three states, and once they're ratified, um, you know we'll will have the ERA. Let's just do it. Who's going to stop us? Let's just go do it. There was again a lot of reluctance, specifically from the National Organization for Women, from the feminist majority. Ellie Smeal was horrendously opposed to the ERA. Uh, really, really did a lot of harm to the cause of unity to the fight for the ERA, she has been repeatedly hostile uh, to the ERA over the years. um, Although she has also said that it's been her number one way to raise money, which says something. And and I write about the different ways that she um, has been criticized over the many years that she's been involved in this business. Um, Criticized for, not really helping at all with the ERA and sometimes undermining the ERA. And you know, I think her organization, I, I don't know the details of this, but I, I think her organization is funded by the Democratic Party. So there's all this stuff about how it's really just a partisan um, hack, if you will. The, or, her, her organization, the Feminist Majority, is uh, not widely perceived as first and foremost a women's rights organization so much as um, a Democratic Party proxy, if you will. Uh, And that's one of the reasons there aren't a lot of feminists supporting it, because we know that uh, to prevail, we have to be nonpartisan because neither political party has supported women's equality, really neither party. And it remains true today that both parties have undermined the ERA. But nothing really came together until 2012. In 2012, the United States archivist, who's basically our librarian, his name is David Oh, Oh, um, Wendy, before you go on with that, for, yeah. for novice
0: listeners, can you just give us a little bit of background on that position, what it entails?
1: The archivist? Yes. Yeah. The U.S. archivist, his name, his current, his name currently is David Ferrero. He's been in there for uh, decades now. He was there back in 2012. His job as the U.S. archivist is sort of the nation's librarian. His job is to literally manage all the papers that pertain to how our government works and things that we do, pass laws, you know, all the, all the acts of Congress, everything that our government does, uh, he puts, it the national government. Uh, he, as our librarian, is responsible for organizing it putting it in files, uh, making it uh, accessible to the public, and so forth. So really, he's our librarian. I mean, that is really what Ferrer was trained in, too. He's trained as a librarian. And he was asked in 2012 by Representative Carolyn Maloney, uh, what would his position be in terms of putting the ERA in the Constitution, which again would be his job because he's the archivist. Literally, when Congress votes for a new law or a new amendment becomes part of the Constitution, his job is to put it in there, physically just put it in there. Um, And so she asked him what his position would be in terms of publishing the ERA in the Constitution if three more states ratified despite the deadline expiring back in 1982. And he wrote a letter in 2012 that said, my job is to publish laws when when they become law. And under Article Five of the Constitution, once thirty eight states ratify, I'm obligated to publish. And so he basically said, "If you go get three more states, I'm going to ratify." And he also said, although there, you know, there were several states that tried to rescind their ratification, so he also said in that document, um, and rescissions or attempted rescissions have no legal effect. So he basically said, I'm not going to count these states that tried to pull back on their votes to to ratify. So this really got women going. And between 2012 and 2020, they fought like hell in several states to get those three more states. They were first successful in 2017 in Nevada. The following year in, in Illinois, uh, they won ratification. And then the last state was Virginia in 2020 when virginia ratified we fully expected david ferrero the archivist to publish the era in the constitution and um he he refused he reneged on that 2012 letter and just didn't do his job under article 5 and what's called uh 1 1 us code section 106b which is the statute the federal statute that mandates that he publish uh, amendments in the constitution after three fourths of the states ratify. There's no discretion. It's a mandatory obligation. Uh he can't choose not to ratify not to publish. He can't make assessments about validation. He just has to publish. So let
0: so let me ask you this. Is it in fact not law until he publishes it? Why is he ne- why is he reneging on the 2012 letter and what can be done about this?
1: Well, so this is exactly uh, what I was preparing for years before 2020, when Virginia finally became the 38th state, I was preparing um, my lawsuit because I knew we were gonna have to sue. I didn't know who I was gonna have to sue, but I knew that this was not gonna be accepted without a challenge because the deadline really was Um, you know, an an interesting and important issue to resolve and the courts would probably have to resolve it. So I wanted to be proactive about it. I was planning my lawsuit and I was kind of going around the country, giving my slides and explaining to people what my strategy would be once we reached 38 states. One time I was actually at, um, and then I'll tell you why why Ferrero refused, but one time I was actually in DC at the uh, Alice Paul house, sometimes called the Belmont house, but it's really where the National Women's Party Uh, was stationed for many years until someone decided to give it up a few years ago, which kind of boils my blood. Uh, But we used to actually have our own political party. And for reasons I find very confusing and likely uh, suspicious, our party folded some years ago as quid pro quo in exchange for ownership uh, in perpetuity of this Alice Paul house in DC, which is where she wrote the ERA. But anyway, I was at that Alice Paul house um, giving a talk and presenting to the audience, you know, the slides that were going to explain my lawsuit strategy. And uh, for some reason, Ellie Smeal from the feminist majority showed up and she was on the stage with me. I didn't even know she was going to be there. As far as I knew, I was just going to be myself, but she shows up um, to my surprise. And uh, I gave my talk and she gets, and I say, you know, we are going to file lawsuits. We're not sure where, uh, but we're going to file a lawsuit to make sure that the courts validate the ERA by invalidating the deadline. That was our approach. She gets up and says, um, and people were so excited, you know, they were like, yeah, we're going to do this. And she gets up and says, I am going to file lawsuits just like Wendy. I totally agree with Wendy, everything she just said, and all of the arguments she just made. And I agree with her. And I have teams of lawyers across the country. Constitutional scholars, litigators ready ready in the wings to file lawsuits as soon as we get the thirty eighth state, and you know that everyone cheers for her because she's got teams of lawyers around the country that are ready to file lawsuits, right, and of course she then starts raising money off of this idea that she's got teams of lawyers ready to file lawsuits. Well, guess what happened? Virginia comes around, Virginia votes and becomes the thirty eighth state. I immediately file my lawsuit as I promised I would. Uh, making all the arguments I promised I would make. And guess how many lawsuits Ellie Smeal filed on behalf of the feminist majority? Zero. Exactly. She did nothing. She did nothing to help ratify in Nevada, nothing to help ratify in Illinois, nothing to help ratify in Virginia, but she kept raising money. Every time we ratified, she set, she'd send out a fundraising letter. And then I filed my lawsuit. She did nothing to help. She filed no lawsuits, but of course she would raise money and send out fundraising letters. And um, I'm, you know, litigating the case, trying to win. And my lawsuit was, was a lawsuit against the archivist, David Ferrero because, not just because he reneged on his promise, but because he's mandated to publish. Now it so turns out that publication doesn't create validation. The courts get to decide whether the ERA is valid because the deadline is not valid, or vice versa. The ERA is not valid because the deadline is valid. That's up to the courts, not David Ferrero. So my lawsuit was really just saying to the court, make David Ferrero do his damn job. He does not have the discretion not to publish. No archivist in the history of time in this country has ever not published an event once we reached three-fourths of the states. So my lawsuit was asking the court to make him do his job. And I was also asking the court to declare the ERA valid. The court could have done either or both of those things, but I was asking for both. And I was suing on behalf of women as a class. And I had individual women involved in my case.
0: When are you writing your autobiography and do you want my help? (laughs)
1: I'm, i'm serious but anyway tell us what happened with the law yeah so what so so the short story is uh the very short version of what could be a super long story is i filed my lawsuit and pretty soon after i filed my lawsuit the three states that ratified um last the last three virginia illinois and nevada they filed their a separate lawsuit in dc federal court so we had both cases going And we all made the same arguments. The deadline is not valid, therefore the ERA is valid, and please make the archivist do his damn job and publish. Because even though publication doesn't create validation, it's not nothing, it's not nothing. If he had published, it would have signaled to the states because it would have gone out to everybody around the country, like the ERA, the constitution has changed, here it is, your new constitution. And uh, that would have signaled the states to begin examining their laws for sex discriminatory provisions and fixing them. That's what that does. Publication causes the states to begin the repair work. That's why the ERA doesn't take effect until two years after the last state ratifies. It gives the states and the national government two years to fix their laws. Because at the end of the two-year period, they can be sued for discrimination, but they get that two-year delay. Well, guess what? January 27, 2022 is, that's this week, is the two-year anniversary of the ERA um, becoming ratified, in my opinion. By- I have for- goosebumps. Right. So, but here's the bad part. Oh, I mean, there's a bad part, good part here, right? Uh, we our case went forward. The DC case went forward by the last three states that that sued, and we both lost on standing grounds, which is to say the courts ducked answering the question. They just, for me, they said women don't have standing to fight about this issue. Of course, my answer back was, if women don't have standing, who the hell does? You gotta be kidding. And I have lots of really good arguments about why, of course, we had standing. But standing is a political doctrine and courts that wanna give you standing will give you standing. If they don't, they don't. You know, it's a squishy, squishy. Wendy, tell us, t- give us a-, uh, a So, our case dismissed. Definition of standing. Oh, standing means that you have a recognizable legal interest in the controversy. So I would say women as a class had a legal interest in the controversy of whether the archivist uh, was legally refusing to publish the ERA. I would say uh, we had severe legal injury by him not publishing. And that's really what you have to show is that you've suffered some kind of injury to your legal interest. I said, this is catastrophic injury because the states aren't fixing their laws now. We're entitled to them to start doing the repair work and, and he's they're not doing it because he didn't publish. That's catastrophic injury to all women. That was all part. right,
0: let me clear let me clarify something for our listeners. So when the ERA passes, which gives women constitutional protection, that means then the states have to go and rewrite any discriminatory laws.
1: Is that accurate? laws, regulations, policies, yes, all of it. And the and the national government too, federal laws are covered too. They all have to be examined, repaired, and so forth. And it also means that courts have to begin enforcing laws better. And it means that the executive branch officials like prosecutors and police have to start enforcing and protecting women's rights to be, you know, to be protected from rape and domestic violence and all of that and sexual harassment. And sex discrimination. All of those things have to be enforced equally,
0: right? It now- sounds like there is there is going to be a huge education piece necessary for, for all that to be enacted. And I thank you for taking the lead on this because people don't know about this. They don't know about the, the ERA and it's it's very troubling. What else can be done about this archivist? And what is your prediction as to what will happen regarding the ERA?
1: Well, so again, we lost on standing. The DC case was also dismissed on standing. The court said the states didn't have uh, standing to complain uh, about the archivist not doing his job. The archivist's name again is David Ferrero um, is retiring in a couple months. So we're putting an awful lot of heat on him to do this as his last hurrah. You know, don't go out as a, a bum. Let your legacy be that you were heroic. Your mother would be so proud of you. Blah blah blah. We're doing all we can to just pressure him to be a radical revolution. Should
0: we? Should we write to him?
1: Yes, yeah, sure. Do whatever you can. Tweet. He's got a Twitter account. Uh, you know, protest out in front of his uh, office. Do whatever you can because if he does publish, it still doesn't mean validation. But it but it would sure push us in the direction of validation, and it would make it would put the burden on the naysayers to undo the presumptive validity that comes with publication. So that's why I'm, I'm trying really hard to pressure him. But we will put his information in our show notes. Excellent. And then there's something else that's going on. Remember I said on January 27th, 2022 is when under the, under article five, under the straight up rules of the constitution, an amendment becomes law when the last state ratifies. So in my opinion, the ERA becomes valid January 27th, 2022. So I'm planning to file new lawsuits doing what? challenging discriminatory laws that they refuse to fix. And what am I focusing on? Hate crime laws. So important that your listeners understand this. Hate crime laws in this country often exclude women from protection, even though women suffer the most hate crimes by far, which is to say they are victimized by violence because of who they are, because they are female. So I'm planning to sue in some of the states that that cover all sorts of categories, race, national origin, religion, but not women. I'm gonna sue in those states and argue that those hate crime laws are discriminatory under the ERA and use those lawsuits to get judges in those cases to say the ERA is valid. And I don't give a damn what Ferrero did. And I don't give a damn what the Department of Justice thinks because Because you asked me, why did Ferrero not publish when he said he would? It's because the Department of Justice under Bill Barr, which was then the Trump administration, wrote a legal memo and sent it to Ferrero and said, don't publish, the ERA is not valid because the deadline is valid. Women then in large numbers voted for Joe Biden thinking he would undo that mess, right? Remove the Bill Barr memo, let the archivist publish. Well, guess what? Biden got into office, He did not remove the Bill Barr memo. He did not direct the archivist to publish, even though he could, because the archivist is an executive branch official. And guess who's the head of the executive branch, President Biden? Biden has done nothing to help the ERA. He has taken the exact same position that Trump took in terms of fighting against the lawsuits, not telling the archivist to publish, not removing the Bill Barr memo. I think there's a push underway right now for Biden to remove the Bill Barr memo and then declare himself a hero to women. But guess what? Removing the Bill Barr memo doesn't get us publication, doesn't get us validation. All it does is get Joe Biden a few pats on the back and maybe helps the Democrats in November. I'm not okay with that. I'm not interested in helping the Democrats win in November. I'm interested in helping save women's lives. Five women a day are killed by men in this country. That's almost double the number from 30 years ago. Guess why they're being killed? Because they don't have equal protection, full equal protection of the laws that are supposed to protect them from being killed by men. I don't care who's in office. Neither party has helped women win equality in this country, neither party. And until we rise above the silly bipart- silly uh, two-party nonsense and understand that why did Alice Paul create a, a women's party? Because she knew that neither party gave a damn about giving women the right to vote. She knew back then what we seem to have forgotten today. Women need to unite across party lines, refuse to be a party lemming, demand equality, period. And until one of the parties decides to take this on and really make it happen, we owe it to ourselves to be fiercely nonpartisan. Rise up as our own party until we are equal.
0: Wendy Murphy, thank you so much. Thank you for your, thank you for educating us. Thank you for your advocacy. We appreciate you. We're going to put your information in the show notes. We will put some information about Alice Paul in the show notes, and I think we should do a part two soon.
1: I hope we do, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks to Emily for helping and I'm glad we had all this time to do this. It's a really important topic. Uh, It needs way more time than we had today, but we got a lot covered and that's because of you. Thank you so much for paying. This
0: has been very instructive, Wendy. Thank you so much. I'm serious about that autobiography, okay? We are Educate, Caring Activist, Teachers for Equity. Educate would like to thank the following for their support of this broadcast. The University of Illinois at Springfield, UIS, the College of Education and Human Services at UIS, the Department of Teacher Education at UIS, the Center for Online Learning, Research and Service at UIS, and a very special thanks goes to our sound editor and designer, Emily Bowles, Online Learning and Faculty Development Specialist at COLORS, Center for Online Learning, Research and Service at UIS. I'm Jennifer Martin. Remember, always err on the side of awesome.